My first five to maybe eight years at the big four were just that, sort of um, burning the midnight oil up to 100 hour weeks. Wow. Um, go, go, go. I'm going to go quite deep on this one then. Um, Great. I was, I was fortunate to have stage three cancer when I was 23 years old wow. um, working at the big four. Mm -hmm. um, and I say fortunate because not to get too philosophical, but my view is that you just, you, you can work a million jobs in your lifetime, you know, to the day you die, but you'll never get a second chance if you try. A boss once asked me, why, why are you so analytical? Why don't you trust your gut a bit more? Um, and I, I thought, I've thought long and hard about this. And my dad was uh, in the construction game. To innovate, to generally create something new, um, you are at a high risk of failure. Um, and therefore, if you aren't failing, you effectively aren't successfully. All it is is a simple shift in mindset. Instead of saying, why is this happening to me? It's saying, hang on, there's a good reason this is happening to me. Like, what is it that I can learn from this? And where can I, where can I, what can I do with it? Welcome, Dritton, to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure. So you're actually um, my first guest. I've just recently changed the name of my podcast from Startup Journeys Founders Unplugged, which I wasn't really 100% happy with. Just for a start, it was a mouthful. And I originally wanted to have uh, a podcast that talks about failures and how we learn from that and we move on because there, is, there are a lot of failures. There's, there's heaps of success stories out there. And um, the reality is there's more failures than successes, but you know, focusing on what we can learn from failures because that's just part of life, as part of startup life, part of everything, um, and making a failure not, you know, sound like a dirty word, so to speak, uh, with that sort of connotation. No, failures are good because we learn from them. So the new startup, sorry, the new podcast name is um, Startup Fail Wisdom Podcast. So Fail Wisdom is put together because we can learn a lot of wisdom uh, from our failures. So what do you think of that name? I, I think it's a great, um, a great change. I, I was reading uh, Elon Musk's biography over the Christmas break, um, and there's, it's by Walter Isaacson, um, who's also done Steve Jobs and a number of others, and he's the whole, a big focus of the book, um, and if you, if you read a lot of the stuff that Steve Jobs and Elon Musk sort of stand for is about to innovate, to generally create something new, um, you are at a high risk of failure. Um, and therefore, if you aren't failing, you effectively aren't successfully innovating. So I, I, I think it's a great move. I think um, there seems to be a move in the literature and all the podcasts that I'm listening to where um, a lot more people are starting to talk about um, failure or rejection or difficulties that they have to overcome in order to build a successful business. Because I think the reality is success is the tip of the iceberg. Um, and there's, there's often a lot of um, rejection, failure and learnings that underpin that success over time. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we can learn so much. And I, I was part of a, a, um, a group before that was learning all about business stuff. I think it's almost like 10 years ago. And they used to have you know, one successful person after the other come on stage and talk about, you know, how they were successful. But each one of them uh, had a different story and was successful in different ways. So one would say, this is how you can be successful. The other would say this, and that would be the opposite to what contradict the was saying, yeah. contradict them. Um, but I think we can learn more actually from the failures that they've had along the way because then you, you, you know, you talk about a particular failure and someone will like, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. That's what's going on with me now. Maybe I, sh I could try this. So, and I think those stories are actually more interesting, to be honest. You know, it's, it's like the, the hero's journey in literature or in film. You know, it's all about that journey and the obstacles along the way and, you know, how they overcame them. I think yeah. that's much more interesting in storytelling as well. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I think it's a function of culture and society, right? Like we, we celebrate successes and they're sort of, um, almost embarrassment, I think, um, around failure. And it really is about shifting the mindset and embracing failure and learning from failure and learning from uh, leaning into it um, and, and learning from I've got a little two-year-old daughter 
um, you know, whenever I'm starting it now in our conversation, sort of like, you know, making mistakes is absolutely normal, but what are we learning from them? You know, that's yeah. what I'm trying to drill into her from a young age. Yeah. yeah. There's some sort of saying, like, if you've never made a mistake, then you've never done anything. <laughs> anything new, by definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. All right. Well, um, yeah, anyway, so uh, you are my first guest with a new name, and it's great to have you on. So I, I guess to kick things off, I'd love to hear a bit about your background and what led you to run your own startup. Yeah, for sure. It might make sense to just give a little bit of a background as to what I do. Um, yes. I'm I'm a effectively a international tax lawyer, um, mm -hmm. so I, I help multinational businesses who are either coming into Australia um, or expanding out of Australia set up their um, tax structures to ensure that it's compliant with the relevant tax laws. So mm -hmm. I'm a tax consultant, if you like, mm -hmm. so in the services type um, business. Um, professionally, my background is I'm a lawyer, and I've also got a background in finance. Um, I actually, my, my business background started, or professional career started quite young. So it was a family construction business that I grew up in and I was on the tools um, from a very young age. I think most kids were spending their weekends in holiday parks. I was, I was carrying tools around and helping dad and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It was my way of spending time with, with dad over the holidays. Um, I ended up running that business through most of university. So um, my dad would go over to Europe for six months and, and hand the business over to me to run, um, which was my first, I guess, introduction into um, entrepreneurship. Okay. Then from a sort of law perspective, I finished my degree and then joined one of the big four accounting firms um, and did my traineeship there and spent about 11 years there, was a director in that practice um, and then a rare opportunity so I was on the advisory side if you like and then a rare opportunity uh, arose to go on the other side of the fence which was the, the company side so uh, Rio Tinto moved their tax function from Melbourne to Brisbane um, there aren't a whole lot of what we call in-house corporate roles with what I do uh, in Australia let alone in Brisbane small little Brisbane so uh, I jumped at I jumped at that did about two years there um, and and then set up the business. We're in our fourth year now. Um, so that was that was over three years ago. Uh, and then following on from that in-house corporate role, uh, established the business. Yeah, it's interesting um, that uh, one of the big four companies you work for, um, I know a lot of other startup founders that have worked for that company along the way as well. It's, it's interesting. It seems to be like, yeah. a, you know, like a training ground almost, or, or, or maybe um, people, you know, they, they work there for a while and then they like just want to do something themselves, or I don't know if it's the culture or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, what drove you uh, away from that? Um, lifestyle and family decisions is what drove me away from it because I think once you get to the pointy end there and you end up being a business owner in a place like that um, there are certain trade-offs that you have to make um, in order to be you know successful um, as as the big four businesses define it um, some some do it really well um, I, I don't think I had um, the makeup to to, to get that to get that trade-off right between family and work in an environment like that. So I, um, that really inspired me to, to, to make the move. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting really because, you know, startup life can be really grueling and people usually work, particularly at the beginning, really long hours. And it's a subject I talk about a lot is, you know, you just got to, you got to maintain that sort of balance as much as you can <clears throat> at the beginning. I mean, my guest last week, um, Wishman Iskakar, who was the Commonwealth um, Young Person of the Year 2018, and he was saying when he started his startup, he was working, uh, you know, like crazy for two years nonstop and then just got totally burned out. And that story is so, so familiar. Um, but it is hard. I mean, it's really hard. You've got really no, you know, very little resources a lot of the time. You need to be doing just about everything yourself. I mean, how did you deal with that? And how do you compare that to, to the corporate space? And um, because it sounds like, you, you know, you're better off 
uh, doing what you do now, but was it really difficult at the beginning or? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, I went through that phase of my career early on at the big four. So my first five to maybe eight years at the big four were just that sort of um, burning the midnight oil up to a hundred hour weeks. Wow. Um, go, go, go. Um, so I definitely experienced that. Um, when I set up the startup, um, when I set up the business, it was, it was established with some very clear, um, principles and rules in mind. Um, mm -hmm. and one of them is, one of them was really defining what my why was and making sure that I stuck to it. Uh, and the mm -hmm. why for me is family. The reason I do it is family. Um, okay. it's to have a balance. Uh, my wife works some pretty demanding hours. We've got a young family um, and I, not to get too philosophical, but my view is that you just, you, you can work a million jobs in your lifetime, you know, to the day you die, but you'll never get a second chance at your children. So for me, that's, that's a really, really clear why. Yeah. Um, so I've set up, I think to answer your question, I've set up the business in a fashion that tries to mitigate the risk of me um, working those kind of hours again. Okay. Um, but it's very easy to dip back into that life if you're not careful. So I, I, I've got some, you know, my wife and I, I, I constantly use her as my sounding board to ensure that I'm getting it right. And to the end of last year during Christmas, it's a very busy period for us and I wasn't where I wanted to be. So this year I am, um, yeah, tweaking a few things to try and okay. get that right again. Okay. So, um, yeah, knowing your why is really important. So, um, some of these strategies that you put in place, if you were talking to like a, a new startup founder that's coming to you and saying, look, you know, I, I want to do this startup. I don't want to get burnt out. I, I know that you put some successful strategies in place to keep that balance. What, what would you be telling them? What actual specific yeah. strategies would, would you advise them to do? It, it's a good question. I think it, um, I think there's the winning work piece. So how do you, what do you do around winning work and building your business? There's the delivering or building the product, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing. So there's the outward market facing piece. I think there's the inward um, delivery and, and business building piece. Um, on that, I would say that partnerships are critical um, one. So like anyone who, goes out thinking they can do everything themselves is really setting themselves up for failure. So I think, I think surrounding yourself with the right people who you can work together with is, is absolutely critical. Um, I think that, um, the other piece is perfection. Um, if you're striving for, for perfection, I think you're going to again, set yourself up to fail. And what I mean by that is, is the old 80, 20 principle, um, you get 80% of the way there with 20% of the, of the effort. Mm. Um, and often I see a lot of business people, um, be it either startups or in large, large corporates or large consulting houses put so much effort into that final, um, into that 80%, that, that, that remaining 80% mm. for little rewards. So I think it's being, it's being smart around where you invest your time. Um, and perfection is not, always the answer I think so so yeah. partnering and and mm -hmm. um, defining your objectives and not trying to like sort of over over complicate and over perfect it because you will I think set yourself up for failure. yeah yeah I don't think there's any such thing as perfection in the startup world anyway because you're doing something new it's never been done before and you know you're just learning along the way and creating something and um, well there's a saying progress is better than perfection yeah and, and I, I believe that because you can never really reach perfection and then it can also make you really stressed as well because if you're a perfectionist and nothing's ever really going to be per perfect because you'll get to one stage you think oh but i need to do this i need to do that or it's not quite perfect yet and that's quite stressful as well so i think that's yeah really good advice yeah yeah i learned it the hard way i was i was again back in the big consulting houses when I was there trying to perfect everything, you know, like down to the commas in where the commas are in my, in my bullet points. Mm -hmm. Are they all consistent? Like, um, and sure, if you've got the time and capacity to do it, they're fantastic things to, to aim for and strive for. 
Um, but I got to the point where I was at a breaking point just because I was putting energy into the things that did, that didn't really matter, to be honest, in the end of the day. So it was about, and I think the only way, if you are a perfectionist, like I was or am, I think the only way to really appreciate that is to go to breaking point, like go to the point where you've burnt down and, mm -hmm. um, and realize that it's not sustainable. So I, I had to go down that path and reach that point. I hope others, others can acknowledge that, um, that that earlier um and adjust their their um their behaviors earlier to avoid that that point because it's not a it's not a pretty place to be no i mean yeah hopefully if they listen to your story and, and others uh, about burnout then um less likely to do that or to at least think about that what they're doing Now, you know, as, as we spoke before, this is all of this podcast all about failures and challenges and obstacles along the way. So can you share some of the key challenges you face when, when starting TP Benchmark, your, your startup, and how you overcame them? Yeah, and, and it's probably even worth talking about what led me to establishing TP Benchmark because in a sense that was, it was built on the back of what others might perceive as failure, which I saw as an opportunity. So like I was getting, I was a bit uninspired in my old role. Um, I was actually trying to seek approval to start it on the side as a side gig. Um, you know, I'd had approval from the ethics department and the next final approval was from my big boss. When I walked into my annual review meeting, um, sitting next to her was a head of HR and I went, oh, this isn't, this isn't a good start. I can see what's going down here. Um, and I got made redundant and there was a, there was a business restructure and it was very easy and don't get me wrong. It's always a kick in the guts the day that you're, you're made redundant. I'm not going to put on a brave face and say that it didn't affect me negatively, but very quickly I got into like, what opportunity arise here. Like I had this idea to build this business on the side. It was going to be a side gig. Like, is this, is this my sign, um, to, to, to start the business? So I think the first failure, if you like, or, or sign of rejection was the redundancy from my corporate job. Um, but I very quickly tried to um, turn that into a positive and see what opportunity um, sat within that. Uh, and I think that's really, really important. I think as an overarching sort of idea, I think the key is to lean into um, rejection and failure um, and see what the learning opportunities are in it, because there will always there will always be some. And I think some of the, my, my biggest learnings were on the back of at the time what felt like what felt like um, you know difficult circumstance or rejection or failure. So that's when you learn the most, mm. I think. Um, and and um, you know, obviously, as you were saying, you're a perfectionist. You dedicated like five to eight years in that company, and then you were trying to do, you know, something on the side, which is fair enough. You went through all the, the right processes. And how did you feel about that, you know, in that moment? Like, go into more details, like you're, you're sitting down and then your boss tells you what and, you know, what was going through your mind in that moment? Because that, that's a big moment in your life that you've turned into a positive, but I, I'd love to know what you felt then. Yeah, um, I, I was, I won't go into too much detail, but I sort of, in part was anticipating it and was preparing myself financially okay. for it. Um, it was in the mining industry and I think going into a mining job, um, uh, I enjoy my history. And if you look at it, if you look at the mining industry, second that there's a, a downturn in the economy, um, which there wasn't at that point, but the second there is a downturn in the economy, there are always massive redundancies. Okay. Um, so going into that job, one of the first things I did was sort of seek out what insurance was, redundancy insurance effectively was, right? So I guess to answer your question, it's all about hoping for the best and planning for the worst with okay. me in, in terms of the mindset. Um, yeah. So so I was sort of always had an eye on that possibility. So when it arose, what was my feeling at the time? It was like, well, I've prepared for this. Um, like I have prepared for this day. Like, yes, it's a kick in the guts. Mm -hmm. My wife was pregnant with our first child at that point. So you're sitting here going, oh, geez, there's, you know, you got your mortgage, there's financial stress there. But I, yes. um, so, so that was, my, I think, my first instinct, like, was mm. just caring for the family financially. Mm. Um, 
which my wife works as well. So how are we together going to achieve that? Yeah. Um, but then very quickly just went, okay, well, it is what it is. Um, like there's no point, like I'm a stoic from way back. There is zero point dwelling on okay. what you can't control. Um, so I very quickly went into sort of what are my opportunities and did a spreadsheet up to see what, what possible jobs are up there, were out there, um, either in corporate roles or running my own thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, with my why, my underlying why sort of assess each of those options, um, and, and tried to work out what was best for me. Um, and at that time it uh, to, to my mind, it was establishing the business. Yeah, it's um, it's good advice. So you have a very analytical mind, and you prepare, and you know, I, I guess that that helps a lot when those situations happen. You're, you're ready for it, pretty much. It does, but like your your your, strength, your biggest strengths can also be your um, biggest weaknesses. So you know, <laughs> with a tendency to be over analytical, you can. It's very easy to over analyze yeah. um, a situation. What do they call it? Paralysis by analysis. Um, yeah. I, I I'd like to think that. I don't go there. I definitely did in my younger career, in mm. my early in my career. But yes, I, I am quite um, an analytical thinker uh, and try to take things back to first principles mm -hmm. always, um, which, which frustrates a lot of people because I'm not one to go with the status quo. In corporate roles, it actually it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Like people would say, I'd say, why are we doing it this way? And they'd say, well, this is how it's always been done. And that's just the worst answer for me, like um, for, for so many reasons. But... Absolutely. Yeah. And that's probably why you're, you're a startup founder because, <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but it's interesting as well because usually as a startup founder, uh, quite often you, you, you're making lots of decisions, you know, and some on the fly and that. And um, I've had other discussions with other founders and advisors on this. And, um, and what I believe is, that first thought that comes to your mind is usually the right one. Like using your intuition, people call it gut instinct, whatever you want to call it, is usually the right one. But then again, you know, um, you may have that thought and then you analyze it, but sometimes you analyze too much and then you'll do something differently mm. that may not work out. I mean, being a very analytical person, um, how do you operate now in the startup? Because sometimes you do, I guess, have to make quick decisions and, and sometimes they can make a huge difference to, to your business. You know? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. Um, and I think it goes to the heart of risk taking and risk mitigation. So like I'm trained in finance, right? And uh, if you don't take risks, you won't get rewarded is sort of the underlying economic and finance, financial theory. Um, and in my space, a lot of accountants and lawyers are very risk averse and they want to be able to, to see the path yeah. um, and rule out all possible um, risk factors before yeah. before proceeding. Yeah. Uh, and if you take that approach, uh, again, you're, you're, per the theory, you're unlikely to be rewarded um, for exactly. it. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm very cognizant of sort of you need to take risk. And my view on that is um, I think the best, client relationships are one where you have your you have skin in the game i think um you take a risk so in, in, how does it play out for me like you might be scoping something and there are a few unknowns and you, you know you can never really you can you can you got two options you can either spend time and time and time to try and rule out those unknowns which is just going to pest your client um or you can just provide some brief assumptions around what it is that you've assumed going into it, um, get moving on the job and come back to it if you need to. So um, I think moving quickly in my game is far more important, mm. I think, than again, perfecting the outcome, um, which yeah. has been a big learning, I think for me over, over the years, like, it comes back, I'm, I'm bouncing around a bit, but it comes back to, I think, obsessing over your client is, is number one, I think, um, attribute across any sort of startup, be it a product startup, be it a consulting startup. Yeah. And I think that giving them a great experience is, is critical. Absolutely. So, so in my mind, I think to answer your question, it's balancing risk reward with um, ease of use and friendliness for your yeah. customer and that's that's the balance and there are just times where you've got to throw caution to the wind um and work out what is i like to work out what is my worst case 
oh, again, being analytical, what's the best case scenario? What's yeah. the worst case scenario? What's the probability of that playing out? Yeah. Um, and then working out, well, how bad is the worst case scenario? And more often than not, if you can quantify it, there might be some financial loss, yeah. but you're happy with the quantity of that financial loss, but you mm. can see a potential um, reward elsewhere. You've just got to take, you've just got to take that, that risk. Yeah, you can apply that to a lot of different situations. Like, for example, um, a lot of people hate pitching or, you know, getting up in front of people, they feel really nervous. And if you say, look, what's the worst thing that can happen? Like, people say no or they don't like it. And, and what, what does that mean? There's like nothing really. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you, you can apply it to that. And I did have another guest, Peter Brown, and he um, he's an ex-actor and he works helping pitchers and... Um, he was talking about the, the, you know, when we do the lean canvas, um, then when we go through that, we're just making assumptions about everything. But he says, don't forget those assumptions are from, you know, all the knowledge you, that you have, all the learnings that you have. So they're, they're assumptions, but it's from a lot of learning experience, etc., that go into that, even though they're just assumptions at that moment. And quite often uh, they're correct as well. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, I had an experience recently where I had to invest a certain amount of money into a, a certain partnership and it could have fallen flat on its face or, or, or it could have been useful. And I'll never know. There's no way of analytically um, proving it one way or the other. Mm. And I, just, I quantified the amount. I said, well, am I happy with losing this amount of, mm. of money over the next yeah. 12 months in light of a potential gain of this? And I said, yeah, I am. Um, and yeah. it ended up. It ended up being a successful investment, but it was again. It was what's my, what's what's the amount at risk? It's it's taking yeah. emotion out of it and approaching it with a very rational probability weighted um, approach is, is yeah. I think the skill. Or, or the other way um, that a lot of people do, like more like me, um, I just get a vibe about it, about the person, about the investment, and it's like when you're talking to somebody and they might be blah 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 very flowery, nice words, but you feel like mm, something wrong here. You don't get that vibe from them. You know what I mean? It's like when people yeah. aren't genuine, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that's when, when those sort of things start going off in the head, it's like, okay, got to be careful of this one. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really awesome. good point. Coming yeah. back to your point around gut feel. I think there's yeah. definitely, there's definitely something in that. Um, yeah. And your guts, I think more right than it's wrong. Yeah. I think usually. Yeah. And I think a lot of successful founders, they, they really go on that primarily, you know, and yeah. then, you know, then later they can do all the analytics or whatever, but um, sometimes you've got to make a decision in the moment. But um, yeah. yeah, no, in, interesting conversation around that. Um, I probably am a really, you know, massive risk taker um, in just about everything I do, which is it's not good either. It's got to be a balance, you know, so... Um, it can work out sometimes. Like if you buy Bitcoin early, people are like, oh, that's all crap. Yeah. No, you know, for example, that, that might work out for you. Or, um, you know, I was in, I got doing, I was doing property investment years ago and I just bought one property and then straight away used the equity, bought another one, another one, another one, and ended up with six properties in two years and then lost the yeah. whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question. I think it comes if, if you'd ask a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, especially a specialist in this space. I, I'm sure yeah. they'd say that your your um, risk appetite is a function of your upbringing and your childhood. You know, I've just been thinking about what is it that, that I had my a boss once asked me, "What? Why are you so analytical? Why don't you trust your gut a bit more?" Um, and I, I thought I've thought long and hard about this, and my dad was uh, in the construction game, um, real risk seeker, um, and wasn't overly analytical. But he had some rules of thumbs. I remember once he was he was quoting up like a hundred story building, mm -hmm. and he came up with an answer in ten minutes. He sort of did one quick calculation in ten minutes. It was a wow. it was a multi million dollar job. Yeah, and I said, "Are you mad? Like you're going to quote on on like a." on a multi-million dollar job on literally a five minute calculation. So I, I spent the whole night going over the plans and I got to exactly the same number nice. as him. Um, but I think he was real risk seeking. Uh, it paid off for most of his career, but there were a couple of yeah. times it really burnt him. And I think that it's it's those instances that where he got burnt that have stayed with me and are maybe, maybe having me go in the other direction at times yeah. um, to try and make up for, for 
I think it was Barack Obama. Barack Obama, in his in his autobiography, said that um, all successful men. Um, no other words are used, unfortunately, but all successful men are either trying to make up for their father's mistakes um, or live up to his expectations. And in this <laughs> instance, I think I'm trying to make up to his mistakes. <laughs> That's interesting. But, but overall, he was successful in his strategy. Overall, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, it's like that 80-20 rule again, I, I guess. I, I don't know if you can apply it to that. But, uh... Yeah, no, it is. But I think challenges, other challenges, um, to come back to the original question around, in, in my game, it's how am I going to win work? How am I going to deliver that work? Mm -hmm. And then I think volatility and uncertainty in the business, and I think that that's a big one which I'll come to, but sort of winning work, I think it's really important. In my challenge was, in my space, um, the big four accounting firms really lead um really lead the space there's not not a lot of advisors sitting outside that space um that do what what we do um which is a benefit and also um creates challenges um so um there's a reputation there's a perceived reputational benefit of going to one of these large companies um so coming in as a small player um is so far up the other end of the spectrum um that it that it can be daunting so i think what what we did was we really tried to um, define what differentiated us, um, and I think for a long time there I was trying to say, well, we are just like the big four. We are just like the, for mm -hmm. a number of reasons. Um, mm -hmm. All our staff were ex big four, so you yeah. know, in yeah. substance, you're getting the work done by the same people. But then there was this there was this moment. I don't know if it was because a mate recommended um, that book by Max um, Gladwell, um, David and Goliath, where I, where I started to lean into our differences. So yes. the big four are large, they're slow, um, they're very expensive. Um, they don't use senior staff. Um, it's, a very, it's a very big leverage model. So they're using junior staff to deliver a lot of the work and senior staff to, to review it, yes. which means that the quality of work is not always there, um, it, you know it's a big generalization you can have great experiences um but not always and i thought well how do, we're, we're quick we're nimble we're all very senior and we have a, fra a fraction of the cost structure so started leaning into those differences and really owning those differences as opposed to sort of shying away mm. from them i think was a, yeah. a pivotal point yeah. um for us yeah it's it's really yeah it's really interesting and um a mutual friend of ours, Liz Swigart, on on the podcast was talking about that as well. It's like, just be genuine. Like when I started, I felt like, oh, you know, we have to look like a. This is my um, VR training uh, startup. Mm. We have to look like big companies, you know, or yeah. other big organisations. They won't, you know, they won't be interested in what we're doing, um, and you know, so you're trying to be perceived as something bigger than you are. And it just doesn't feel right or genuine in yeah. a way. But I think what Liz was saying, not, not the same words, but just be yourself, be genuine, tell people your story, and then, you know, bring them on the journey with you and build that community, I think, is the best way to do that. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think defining your buyer is really, really important. Um, there's a part of the market, for example, that, for us is unfazed by this reputation, you know, this brand yeah. piece that the big four can provide. And, and there's a, a part of the market that is phased by it. So like just being really clear around who your buyer is and just investing your time in the right, in the right spaces. And I think a learning for me was that's often by trial and error. There've been instances where I'm like, oh yeah, I worked with this person for a decade, like, they would absolutely, um, they know exactly what they're getting um, mm -hmm. by engaging us. It would be a no-brainer. But, again, had reluctance because of this brand perception. And equally on the other side, I'll pitch for work where really large jobs, I spent 15 minutes on it because I'm like, there's no way I'm, I'm winning this work. They ended up winning it. So, right. so I think you've got to be flexible in your strategy. Um, but it's a discovery piece to, in a startup, I think, to work out who's going to buy your product. And I think having a, an important learning piece for me was not 
not being fixated on your initial strategy. Like you, you may be surprised by who your buyers um, might become. Um, yeah. So being flexible. Yeah, and, and you've got to be flexible in in every way in a startup. I mean, you might pivot into something that you didn't even think of initially. Completely. Know? And that that happens quite a lot as well. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. there was only one piece of advice you could give an early startup founder and only one, <laughs> some people say only one, uh, only one, uh, what would that be? Uh, I think it centers around the, the start of our conversation, which is the mindset around rejection and failure. I think, I think resilience, you know, personal resilience is, one of the um, key traits that you'll find um, underpins a lot of entrepreneurs and startup values and entrepreneurs and startups. Uh, And and what I mean by that is you are going to get rejected. You are going to have failure. There will be moments where you're questioning whether the business works. Um, There'll be moments where you're on top of the moon, um, you know, really, thinking that it's going to shoot the lights out. It, it's, it's a roller coaster of emotions. Absolutely. And I think the only way to, to get through that is to maintain a level of resilience and lean into rejection and failure and try and embrace it. Because mm-hmm. if, if you let it knock you down, um, your chances of getting back up, I think, uh, are reduced. Um, and, and I'm sure that all, if not most startups, founders that you speak to could give you, you know, hundreds of stories around instances where they that were about to throw it in or it was really, really difficult or they thought it might, wasn't going to work, um, but it ultimately did. And I think the only way you get to the other side is through being resilient. Yeah, it's a fine line, isn't it? Because I've had this conversation before as well. Um, there's this uh, image where this, uh, there's a gold digger and he's digging away, digging away, a really long tunnel, and then you see this massive gold um, deposit and it's just like an inch away and then he gives up. I always had that image in my head, um, but then again, sometimes there's uh, you know, the saying, um, if you're going to fail, fail fast as well because you, you might put in a lot of resources and money into something that isn't quite working. So I guess it's a fine line, really. It's, I mean, resilience is absolutely needed, but I think if something isn't absolutely isn't working and customers aren't interested, um, it just depends on... There's so many factors that go into it. In mine, it was just like lack of marketing and sales because there was other companies that came way later than us that did really, really well. Mm. And the only difference was the marketing and sales. But if, yeah, if it's a something that customers want and need, then it's more likely. But if it isn't, and you haven't done your proper customer research at the beginning, mm. um, yeah, you, there can be a point where you think, oh, what do I do? I can't continue and it's going to, this is, I'm going to lose all of this. Yeah. But then you might lose a whole lot more or, you know what, I'm really close to this happening and I, I'm going to push on. It's in hindsight, you know, you, you can say, well, yeah, I should have done this, should have done that. <laughs> when yeah. you're in the moment, it, that's one of the most difficult decisions, I think. Your, as you can tell, I, I like to read, uh, your um, gold mining analogy really resonated. I was, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Lex Friedman, um, who yeah. the, the podcast host, the um, MIT uh, AI expert. Yeah. And he always talks about Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning um, book. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've heard of that, but... It's, it was, Victor was a, um, a psychiatrist, a, a Jewish psychiatrist who was in the Nazi detention camp mm-hmm. and really used the experience uh, to try and understand human behavior, um, you know, at its extreme, in extreme mm-hmm. circumstances. And I think yeah. the essence of the book is um, leaning, finding meaning finding meaning in really difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about instances where, you know, there were three or four occasions where he missed he missed a truck. Him and a friend missed a truck that was on Liberation Day, um, the truck out of the, out of the Nazi detention camp. Um, and he was bummed by it. 
and um, very quick, quickly learnt soon after um, that the truck had actually gone off um, to another camp and no one survived on that particular truck. So there were all, there were all these near misses mm. um, which he, he dodged just inadvertently by complete accident. Um, and he talks about the fact that if, you know, when you have rejection or failure, you can, you can look at it through the lens of, well, this, what's this all worth? Like, what, what, what am I doing this for? Or you can flip, you can flip the perspective and say, there has to be meaning. There has to be meaning in what it is that I'm experiencing right now. And it has to be positive. What is it? Um, yeah. what can I learn from it? And I think that's, that's really, really critical is to find that meaning. Um, and it's a shift in mindset. All it is is a simple shift in mindset. Instead of saying, why is this happening to me? It's saying, hang on, there's a good reason this is happening to me. Like, what is it that I can learn from this? And where can I, where can I, what can I do with it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What is it I can learn from this? I mean, you've, you know, you had your experience in, in your previous job and then you were laid off. Um, I had an experience where, you know, I had a job for a lot of years. Um, to be honest, I was bored out of my mind. Uh, but, uh, I, I was pretty much bullied out of that place. Mm. <laughs> so it wasn't a pleasant experience. But from that, I did my startup. I'm doing this podcast. You know, life life has been a, a lot better since then. And I can do my own thing, feel like myself. And uh, so, yeah, it's just the meaning you give everything. And, and some people say as well, there's a saying, there's no such thing as coincidence as well, which mm. is, uh, I, I guess, a whole nother um, topic, but I, I do believe that in a lot of instances, you know, there's there's meaning really in everything, and it's the meaning you draw out of everything as well. Like for example, every morning I, I do a like a grateful practice. I'll wake up, try to feel really peaceful, get in touch with you know whatever, and then think about all the things I'm grateful for, which is so many. Like you, there's always stuff, and then that sets up my whole day mm. to feel so much better. And if I didn't do that. Maybe I think, oh, I haven't got time. It's, you know, it's going to take me five minutes. I, I bet, you know, my day, I would waste like hours more in the day because I wouldn't be feeling at the same level, wouldn't make the same decisions. Wouldn't, you know, it, it, it's, it's really important. Yeah. 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 You know, um, it's funny you brought up the, the AI, uh, this uh, podcast around AI, which is really interesting. It's like a huge topic at the moment. I did notice a post you had recently uh, on LinkedIn talking about AI uh, and your industry. And I was just wondering, uh, because it, some people say that AI will kill whole industries like accounting and like uh, law and, you know, a whole lot of other things, like in the next 10 years. Um, but I saw that you were actually positive about it in some areas. So, yeah, uh, tell us more about that and what you think is the impact of AI is going to be in your industry and in general. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, again, I, I enjoy my history and I think history is underpinned by technological change. Um, you know, it began with the invention of fire um, and it's more recently um, extended to the development of computing and now computing power is obviously just increasing exponentially um, and will do again, I think, once sort of quantum theory advances as well. Um, my, my view is that you need to lean into technological change and not shy away from it. And there's two schools of thought in my industry. One is it can never replace us, find every single reason why we are superior to it and why it will never replicate certain human behavioral traits. Um, the other school of thought is, well, geez, this can make our life a lot easier and allow us um, and manage a lot of the routine tasks um, that take away too much of our time yeah. and let us focus uh, on value-adding areas initiatives. So they're the two schools of thought. I, I, I share the, the former, the latter, um, the latter school of thought, which is if you look at the course of history, um, all technology has always done is a way to add, add value um, in, in other areas and create new jobs. That's a theory. Like steel workers, you know, steel workers lost their jobs, you know, soon after, well, I think it was the 50s and 60s around the world where a lot of the steel mills, say, in the UK and the US shut down. 
I'm not sure of the precise period, but that, that created a whole lot of retraining. Um, so I think you have to lean into technological change. I've always been a huge advocate um, of using technology to, um, to, to, to make out, to do our job and deliver our work much more efficiently. Um, I had big, I had big, big disagreements, um, with some very senior leaders when I was talking about automation seven, eight years ago, you know, and I was told, well, we're going to cannibalize our business. I said, if we, if, if we don't cannibalize our business, someone else will. And I think that's the practical reality of it. So I, I use it a lot. Um, and, um, it's, it's cutting hours and hours, um, out of routine, non-value-adding work yeah. and therefore allowing us um, to get in front of our, our clients, um, spend more time with them on things that add value to their businesses um, as opposed to us spending time, you know, locked up in our, in our, at our desks um, doing administrative tasks that, that take us away from our clients. So I, I, think, um, I think we've just scratched the surface. I was watching an interview with Sam Altman, obviously the CEO of OpenAI at the World Economic Forum um, mm -hmm. just last week. Okay. And they showed a video of him predicting the power of AI and its future 10 odd years ago. All right. Um, and then they played it back to him and they said, what, how, how close were you to, to where you think you are now? Yeah. And he was, he was pretty close with one exception. Like he, he felt at that time, 10 odd years ago, that AI's ability to create, you know, its creative mm -hmm. ability. Uh, would be limited relative to humans, yep. but what AI show, is showing us now is that it is it is as powerful um, at creating. Uh, um, he used an example of the different artwork that's being created by AI, which is which is original, innovative, um, novel. One example that comes to mind I saw recently that one of the US schools, I want to say Yale, I can't remember which one. Yep. Um, commissioned a piece of work with OpenAI to try and develop the next mineral um, to effectively replace lithiums in battery technology. And I think in the space of a week or two weeks, they they created a mineral that is far more effective than lithium. And they said it would have taken them 20 plus years, I think, to to come up with um, that substitute pre pre this technology. So I, I think it's we're just touch it's a very long answer i'm sorry but we're just scratching no, the surface yeah. and i think it's i think it's going to to truly change the way that that we do business yeah absolutely look i'm in your camp as well like i, I use ai and it helps me a lot i'm just you know with my startup we're up to 12 people you know with employees and interns before and now it's just me and you know i can get a lot of work done and all that sort of tedious stuff admin and all that sort of thing it just speeds that up so much. Um, it's, and, and yeah, that's amazing. That story about the, the mineral, that's amazing. And that there's a sort of breakthroughs that are, are going to happen. I mean, a lot of people still do fear, you know, these sort of um, Terminator 2 type scenario where it takes over the world. You know, uh, hopefully not. <laughs> um, I guess we need to put a lot of uh, things in place now. And I think some countries are, are doing that so that bad actors can't use it for for bad things um yeah, yeah. there's enough bad stuff going on in the world anyway but uh and, and they're genuine concerns i think they yeah. are genuine concerns yeah. and we need to be you know i'm a big fan of yuval harari and he's been he's been uh, the author of sapiens and he's been quite outspoken about this for some time mm -hmm. um not not to say that we can't do it successfully but to say that if we aren't careful like you know this could end very badly for us yeah. So, some experts are just really dismissive of it, saying, well, AI will always act in our best interest because we, we've developed it. I'm not sure I agree with that school no. of thought because the truth is that it's a black, it's starting to become a black box. Like a lot of the developers don't even know sort of um, <laughs> what, what it's capable of and what its intent is. So it does need, it does need some regulation. I, I think that is, that is important. Yeah. And at the yeah, about six months ago when I had the whole team and AI was, you know, chat GPT was coming out and all of that, I used to say to everyone, look, don't be threatened by this. Use it. Learn how to use it well yeah. and it'll just increase your productivity, you know, yeah. so, because some people think, oh, this 
it's going to take my job and I guess it can in some cases but if you learn how to use it properly if you become a you know really good at AI and prompting and, and using it then you you if you're working for someone else you increase that productivity for them and if it's for yourself as well I think yeah we should never really ignore technology advances not that technology is always great depends what it is but there's you know it can be used for good or bad it's like a knife you can use it to cut up you know food or you can stab someone i guess so it's 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 yeah. the uses that we we get out of it but it is a very very um powerful tool um to use yeah yeah i, I think you need to you need to lean into it like if, if you don't lean into it um it'll it'll yeah. it will take your job yeah all right so to finish off um what is a question you wish people asked you that no one has ever asked you? Jeez. Um, that's a tough one. Something about you that you'd like people to know or that you, oh, you know, I wish, wish Paul would have asked that on the podcast. I think when I... Whenever I meet someone new, I think everybody has a story, um, mm. a life event, um, or, or or a situation that has really defined who they are, and mm. it's often in in your formative years. Um, yeah. So I always, when meeting someone, one of the last questions I'll ask is, "What do you do?" It's it'll be to try and find out what it is. Um, that has defined the person that I'm speaking to. And if you listen to Steve Bartlett, uh, we've discussed that we're both fans of Diary of a CEO podcast. Yeah. He always starts his podcast there. Like, what is it? What is it about your early experiences that define you? Um, so I think, I think it'd be in, in a similar vein. Yeah. Okay. That... So, Dridden, what is it about your early experiences that define you? I'm going to go quite deep on this one then um right i was i was fortunate to have stage three cancer when i was 23 years old wow. um, working at the big four mm -hmm. um and i say fortunate because when you're faced with your, when you face your mortality at such uh, your mortality at such a young age mm -hmm. um again you can either curl up in a ball um and and you know hide under a rug um, or you can try and find um, meaning in that situation. And, and again, I, I was the latter. Um, and it really it really defined my approach to sort of work-life balance. It's a phrase that's used so loosely these days. But for me, it, 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 it showed me just how fragile life is, how short it can be. And I have very consciously tried to use that experience um, to prioritize things that I think are really important to me, which are family um, and and personal happiness and family happiness. So um, I think that would be my answer to that particular question. Well, thank you for sharing that um, very personal event. And, yeah, it, I'm just really happy that it's, it's well, that you took the meaning you took from that, you know, because other people, you know, it may go completely the opposite and, and i think also with a lot of illnesses like cancer is really obviously a very serious one your positive outlook as well can help a lot i mean there's even that movie about or the book about the laugh doctor which is a true story um i think it's called the laugh doctor and i think uh, robin williams played him in the in the movie uh the beautiful robin williams but uh and yeah you know, having a positive outlook and trying to be happy will actually promote uh, more health and you're more likely hmm. to recover as well. And the learning, I, ha I haven't watched that movie. I'm a big Robin Williams fan, so I will, I will um, mm -hmm. sit down to watch that tonight. But yeah. I think the big learning and message that I would share is just the self, a basic self checkup, um, right? For women, if it's getting screened for men it's you know similar making sure there aren't any lumps and bumps where there shouldn't be and i think that's um that's critical and you just i thought i was too busy i was a graduate in a big four and i thought work was too important i was too busy to go and see the doctor until one day my dad said that's enough yeah. like you're in pain go and see a doctor um and in my mind work was just so important mm. um that i almost didn't go see the doctor and yeah. it almost cost me my life which in hindsight you go well 
you're you're a 23 year old graduate <laughs> in an accounting firm like really it was what could have been that important oh. so that that's my message and I, I try and share that message with, with with everyone because a trip to the doctor um it's quick it's cheap and it can save your life like just just err on the side of caution absolutely and yeah i'm sure there'll be people listening to this that might be in a similar situation just go and check it out i mean you know, it may not be anything, but at least you'll have peace of mind as well. And never put work um, over your health. It's, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, what, what, what is life about? If you haven't got your health, haven't got your family, you know, and it's, you, you haven't really got anything, um, you might. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. And it's contextual, right? Like we're, we're very provision in Australia. We're in a lucky country where most of us can say that, um, that we can um, work shouldn't be more important than family because we can often make the choice to not work and spend time with our family. There are many, if not a majority of the population around the world who haven't got, like you look, in a, look to the United States where capitalism has just gone wild and there's a mum, mm. a single mum working three jobs to yeah. put food on her child's table. She hasn't got a choice um, to, to, you know, yeah. prioritise family over work. So we're, we're very... Uh, it's contextual and I think we're very lucky here. Others might not be so fortunate, but where you have the ability to, where you have the the privilege and the ability to, to make that choice, for me, it's really clear what choice to make seven days of the week. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually, I lived in um, the States in 1989-90 and uh, I was working for $5 an hour hmm. um, delivering pizzas and uh I remember the no four twenty five an hour it was our wage, and I don't think it's gone up that much. Uh, no. Yeah, and and uh, and then you know you try and get tips from like I ended I was making the pizzas then I was delivering the pizzas, and then I remember the um, the the manager of the store was on fifty thousand a year, which was you know a lot in that time, mm. uh, and the. The manager underneath him was just on six dollars an hour, and then all the workers on four twenty-five an hour. So it was mm. a huge difference between. But I saw that there in the United States. Um, it just actually made me realise how lucky we are here. Really, you know. I mean, obviously yeah. the situation could have changed, but I don't think it has. I think that's why they've got so many issues there now. No, it, it, inequality now is at the levels it was in the feudal system. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I won't. I won't get on my soapbox about that. But I'm, I'm a bit of a. I believe in in. You know, this could be relevant to future discussions like profit sharing and sharing, sharing in the wins and successes of your business with those that you're dependent on. I think um, greed greed gets you in the end of the day. And I think I learned that from my dad. You know, he'd have jobs which they'd knock over well ahead of budget, and every every job the guys would all get a bonus, um, which mm. was unheard of. He used to yeah. he used to help. His, his workers, he basically loaned them money to get their first, first houses and just slowly took it off their pay, interest-free, just things like that. I think, I think we're nothing without our teams and our staff. Um, yeah. And it's, it's it, I think, being too greedy and selfish will ultimately, uh, it's about giving. I mean, my, my motto is life's about survival, success, um, and then giving. Um, so that's, that's important. Absolutely agree with that. And I was just remembering, um, I think it was uh, somewhere in Europe, there was a, a guy that had a f like a massive factory with like a few thousand employees. And I think he, you know, it was his father's originally. And then it got sold and he distributed it all um, to all the employees equally. So yeah. all of them, you know, I, I thought that was a, a beautiful story. And we have to acknowledge and, you know, if, people are putting a big effort, we, we have to reward them as well. Um, greed is not good. <laughs> no. And that's why I'm not, not a big fan of, uh, you know, the whole unicorn mentality as well, you know. And, and I've, I've interviewed a lot of um, founders and, and, and funders um, in the impact space, in the social enterprise space, and they're funding these businesses that, you know, it's really hard to get funding, but they're doing really good things. For people, for the for the society, for the environment, and um, yeah, I think that's really important. Is what you're doing as well. Um, it, it's you know, at the end of the day, some people become really successful, and they might be greedy, but what have they got? They've got nothing really. You know, they can no. be miserable living in their mansion on on, on the beach, 
or you could be, you know, um, really happy because you've really helped people along the way uh, and you've rewarded people. So I totally yeah, agree with that philosophy. We, yeah, we've, we've got a similar mindset, I think, by the sounds of things, yeah. Awesome. Well, look, it's been wonderful. Um, really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and um, sharing your wisdom and your stories. And uh, I'm sure this will be very helpful for a lot of people. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we finish up? No, thank you for, thank you for having me on. Um, I'm, I hope that your startup and your podcast goes from strength to strength. Um, I think your 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 genuineness, authenticity, and honesty will 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 see that I think come to fruition. So good luck, all the best. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that.